Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa DeSimone. And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on the recent ProPublica article entitled Lord of the Roths. Peter Thiel, a billionaire founder of PayPal, managed to take a retirement account worth less than $2,000 and turn it into $5 billion over the course of 20 years. In today's episode, we unpack the differences between Roth and traditional retirement accounts, highlight some Roth-related tax loopholes, and discuss some equity issues that can arise when using tax breaks to subsidize retirement planning. Hello, B. Hello, Lisa. Today, we're discussing another ProPublica article from their secret IRS files. Dun, dun, dun. This one, cleverly titled Lord of the Roths. It details how Peter Thiel, one of the founders of PayPal, accumulated $5 billion in his Roth IRA. And the reason we're talking about this on a tax podcast is because as long as Thiel waits long enough to access those funds, He will not pay any tax, that is $0 in tax, on $5 billion of accumulated wealth. That's a lot of not tax. It's impressive. All right, so let's start by talking about what the heck is a Roth IRA. And to do that, we'll back up even further and talk about what is an IRA. It is not the Irish Republican Army in this setting. So an IRA is an individual retirement account, which is basically like a regular investment account that you set up for yourself at the bank or a brokerage house, or a robo-advisor. But the trick is that any investment income you earn in that IRA is tax-sheltered. So in a regular investment account, you would be taxed every year on whatever interest, dividends, or gains you earned. With an IRA, you get the benefit of a pre-tax rate of return compounding over time. And this may not sound like a huge deal, but it actually is. So say, for example, you invest just $1 for 30 years and you earn a 6% rate of return on that investment each year. If that was normally taxable at the top rate on investment income, which is right now about 24%, you would pay much more tax than if you had that same return being earned in an IRA where you didn't pay that annual tax. In fact, you'd have 50% more money in your IRA after 30 years than if you had just put that money in a regular investment account. So if you can't, if you have the ability to put money away and not touch it until retirement, which not everybody does, you're much better off doing that through an IRA than through a regular savings or investment account. So that's what an IRA is. Now we get into the nitty gritty. There are actually two types or flavors of IRA. The Roth flavor that Peter Thiel used allows you to take withdrawals from the account in retirement completely tax-free. The kicker is you have to contribute after-tax dollars to a Roth upfront. So basically, you're paying the tax now in exchange for future tax-free distributions. That's right. And that's the main way that Roths differ from the traditional flavor of IRAs. With a traditional IRA, you get a deduction for the contributions upfront. So the money you contribute is really pre-tax dollars. And the kicker is that then you have to pay tax on your future withdrawals in retirement. So you get a tax break now when you put money in, but you get taxed when you withdraw. And it may sound like these tax effects of the traditional versus Roth flavors might be drastically different, but actually it's pretty easy to show that any dollar invested in either account would give you the same exact amount in after-tax money in retirement as long as you assume that tax rates don't change over time. But, of course, tax rates do change. And so the old rule of thumb is that Roths are good for individuals who expect to face higher tax rates in retirement than during their income earning days, 
whereas traditional IRAs allow individuals expecting their tax rates to go down in retirement to take advantage of those tax benefits now during their working years through the deduction that they get on that contribution to the traditional IRA. How do you know, is your tax rate going to go up or down in retirement relative to now? It doesn't just depend on predicting what's going to happen with future tax legislation. It also has to do with how you expect your income in retirement to compare to your income now. But you can't forget social security income, investment income, and withdrawals from traditional retirement accounts are all going to count as taxable income in retirement. And so if you have a lot of those types of savings or income, your tax rate might actually go up. Okay, so the key point here, like you said, is the trade-off of when you're going to get the tax benefit. With a traditional IRA, you're getting the tax benefit. Now, when you make the contributions with a Roth, you're getting the tax benefit in the future when you make the withdrawals. Now, conventional wisdom is that lower income taxpayers who are in lower tax brackets don't really reap significant tax advantages from making contributions to traditional IRAs. And that's one of the reasons why Roth IRAs were enacted in 1997. As the story goes, Senator William Roth of Delaware wanted to restore the upfront tax deductions for contributions to retirement accounts, which had been repealed as part of the 86 Act. But it was going to be too expensive to give those tax breaks to everybody. So the compromise was to limit eligibility to those people with lower income. So the point here is that every year there is a limit, A, in terms of how much anybody can contribute to a Roth, and B, there are income limits. And if you're above those limits, you're not, in theory, supposed to be able to contribute anything to a Roth. Except... Except that they can. So your income may disqualify you from contributing directly to a Roth IRA, but what you can do instead is complicated. So bear with me here. You're going to make a non-deductible contribution to a traditional IRA. What that means is you're contributing to the traditional IRA, but you're using after-tax dollars to do it. You're not claiming the deduction for the amount of the contribution. You then convert those funds over to a Roth IRA. And the reason this works is there's no income limitation on contributions to traditional IRAs, and there's no limitation on conversions between traditional and Roth flavors of accounts. This is a widely used strategy. It's called a backdoor Roth. That's because your income disqualified you from making a contribution through the front door, but the back door is wide open. And that back door is the non-deductible contribution to a traditional IRA converted to Roth. And you have to love the fact that it's called back door that typically doesn't have great connotations associated with it. And yet Congress and the IRS are perfectly well aware of the fact that individuals are doing this. So it's not really like anybody's hiding anything. We wrote a rule but we're letting everybody break the rule. We know that everybody's breaking the rule and we're not doing anything to punish people for breaking the rule. Exactly. It's worth noting that retirement accounts offered to salaried employees by their employer. These are often called things like a 401k or a 403b, alphabet soup. It's the code sections that define them. These also can come in traditional and Roth flavors if offered in both flavors by your employer. And what that means is the backdoor Roth strategy can be done through these types of employer-provided accounts as well. Those tend to be called the mega or supersized backdoor Roth because they can be huge tax savings. You can transfer a whole bunch more into your Roth account than you could through your IRA. And so this is a big tax saving strategy for those with liquidity to be able to take advantage of it. Remember, if you put this money in, you're not supposed to touch it until retirement and you might even pay a penalty if you try to access it sooner. 
So back to Thiel. According to ProPublica, he contributed about $2,000 to his Roth IRA at some point in the late 90s. And $2,000 was the maximum allowable contribution at that time. According to records, Thiel's income was only about $70,000 during that time, which was below the threshold for Roth contributions. So he was doing everything on the up and up. But he was then able to use those funds, which were now part of an investment account, to purchase shares of PayPal, which at the time was a privately held company. And he bought those shares at one-tenth of one cent per share. So allegedly, he paid $1,700 for 1.7 million shares of PayPal. Obviously, those shares appreciated substantially over time, and Thiel was able to sell them tax-free by the end of 2002, at which point his Roth was worth over $28 million. And this is where it gets super interesting, at least to tax nerds like us. If Thiel had owned these shares in a regular investment account instead of in an IRA and had sold them within that account, he likely would have been on the hook for at least 20% in capital gains tax. But because he held those shares within an IRA, he could sell those shares in any year and reinvest them if he wanted to and rinse and repeat and do it over and over again. Because as we said, his retirement account is going to shelter any of that investment income as long as it's happening within that IRA. If instead he had held those shares in a traditional retirement account, he would owe tax on withdrawals of those funds at the top ordinary tax rate of 37%. That's actually a disadvantage of traditional flavor accounts because it's turning what could have been a capital gain, which we just said was taxed at a preference rate of say 20%, into ordinary income upon withdrawal and retirement, which is taxed at a top rate of 37%, a non-preferenced rate. So this is where the real magic happens. He wasn't using a traditional IRA. He was using the Roth flavor. And because of that, he gets to withdraw all of those funds in retirement completely tax-free. And the amount of appreciation we're talking about here is huge. This isn't the 6% from our little example, right? He turned $1,700 into $5 billion over time by using a tax-free, basically, venture fund. PayPal and his subsequent ventures did way better than 6%. So that's another tax tip to learn from this is that both traditional and Roth IRAs are great for sheltering that annual investment income, like dividends and interest from tax, but you don't want to put your growth stocks in a traditional IRA if you can avoid it, because it's going to convert a capital gain taxed at a lower rate into ordinary income taxed at a higher rate. You can put them into a Roth though, and like Peter Thiel, you become a bit like a magician making gains disappear. Now, for those of you who are listening to this and thinking it sounds like a really great idea and something that you want to go do tomorrow, we do need to let you know that what Thiel did is considered an abusive transaction, according to the IRS. The IRS alleges that Thiel acquired shares of PayPal, which, like we said, was a privately held company of which Thiel was a founder, for far less than fair value, solely for the purpose of shifting that value into the Roth IRA and circumventing the contribution limitations. And according to their website, the IRS is, quote, engaged in extensive efforts to curb abusive tax shelter schemes and transactions. So unlike the backdoor Roth, which we talked about that the IRS and Congress know about and are sort of turning a blind eye to, this sort of stuffing undervalued assets into your Roth IRA to get the appreciation to grow tax-free is something that the IRS is not willing to turn a blind eye to. Yeah, and this is going to be a recurring theme for us. There's no question that Thiel was able to contribute $2,000 to his Roth 
back in the 90s. That was perfectly legal, perfectly within his rights to do. The question is about the value of the assets that he bought with that $2,000. So much tax avoidance in the U.S. by individuals and corporations revolves around pushing the boundaries on the valuation of a deduction or credit or exception that you can claim, not whether you qualify for that deduction, credit, or exception. And that leads to the second theme, which is IRS resources. Valuation issues are arguably one of the hardest to challenge because when you're dealing with things like private company stock, it does not have an observable market value, it takes a lot of time and money and effort on the part of the IRS to successfully challenge and defend an alternative valuation that they think might be more appropriate. Plus, while there should have been valuations of PayPal done by third parties every time it entered a new round of funding, there are stories of the good old days of Silicon Valley in which a company just had to offer up the right bottle of scotch or maybe a nice cab to get whatever valuation it wanted. We've talked a bit about what a Roth IRA is. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the problems they pose from an inequality standpoint. Taking a step back, the whole issue of using tax policy to subsidize retirement savings gets thorny fast. In 2019, the median U.S. household had retirement savings of only $65,000. And that means that 50% of households had more than that amount and 50% had less than that amount. But the average amount of retirement savings was over $250,000. So what that means is that we have a skewed distribution and the households that have more than 65,000 in retirement savings have a lot more than 65,000 in retirement savings. And this statistic, don't just love taxes, we also love statistics, highlights the first problem. You have to know about a Roth and you have to know about the tax benefits that it provides and you have to have the time and the money to open one. And lower income families, lower wealth families are just less likely to have all of that knowledge and money and resources. That's exactly right. It's the wealthy who are doing most of the savings. So Raj Chetty at Harvard and others have this really cool natural experiment that they did in Denmark. Basically, there was a big reduction in the tax subsidy only for those in the top income bracket. And so they get all this detailed household data on families in Denmark and are able to observe that, yes, those at that top 1% who lost the tax subsidy they saved less in those subsidized retirement accounts after the change, after they lost the benefit, but it didn't change their savings overall. They saved more outside of the subsidized accounts to make up for the difference. So the wealthy are going to save for retirement, whether you give them a tax subsidy to do so or not, which basically means that giving them a subsidy for doing something they're already going to do is just a waste of money. And it gets even worse because the less wealthy save less for retirement, presumably because, you know, they just can't afford to do it. And so the wealthy are the ones who are getting far more of these subsidies than the less wealthy who are the ones who would actually need it the most. You're exactly right. And it's bringing us full circle back to the point of the Roth when it was established. It was to try to provide a tax benefit to those lower income taxpayers. Those are the ones who were prioritized when it was determined that we couldn't give that subsidy to everybody. But through these loopholes and abusive strategies, wealthy individuals are taking advantage of it. 
And to take that a step further, wealthy individuals also likely have more access to these exotic asset classes than less wealthy individuals. And again, Peter Thiel is a shining example of this. Not just anybody could invest in PayPal and buy shares for one-tenth of a cent before it was a public company. This was not an opportunity that was available to everybody, including probably some of the workers of PayPal. So wealthy individuals, such as venture capitalists, are more likely to have access to these private, high-yield investments, like Thiel's sweet PayPal deal and his subsequent ventures. And the wealthy also have a greater ability to pay for tax advice to evaluate whether a traditional or Roth IRA is optimal for them, as well as get advice on how to invest once they have money inside of these accounts. So another reason this gets thorny is because of intergenerational wealth. So wealthy individuals are more likely to be able to forego any distributions from their retirement accounts, which means they can transfer more of that wealth to their spouse or other beneficiaries and say, you know, children or grandchildren upon their death. Transfers to spouses escape taxation. And recent legislation requires some beneficiaries to start taking distributions from an inherited Roth, which helps limit, but doesn't completely eliminate the intergenerational wealth transfer benefits of IRAs. And the amazing thing is that Thiel thought of this too. And in 2011, he became a citizen of New Zealand, which is a country that doesn't have an estate tax. So nice job. And I can't help but feel like there's a Lord of the Rings joke in here somewhere, Lord of the Roths, New Zealand. Unfortunately, I've never seen the movies, so I'm not going to attempt to do that, dot, dot, dot. Challenge accepted. How about keep it secret, keep it safe? One Roth to rule them all. Am I supposed to understand what these things mean? You shall not tax. Legitimately frightened at this moment. (laughs) She didn't understand any of that. It didn't. I'm sorry. (laughs) Time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of this situation. So once again, I'm going to play your resident tax nerd and focus on the educational opportunity that this article provides. You're such a professor right now. I know, I can't help it. But Peter Thiel's Roth, it's a perfect case study for the classroom to understand how to tax efficiently save for retirement. Here's the summary lesson of the day. One, max out your IRAs and 401ks and 403bs if you can afford to do so because you get to compound and grow that money at a pre-tax rate of return, which is far, far superior than having it compound and grow at an after-tax rate of return outside of those tax-sheltered accounts. Lesson two, choose the traditional flavor of account if you expect your tax rate to decline in retirement and a Roth if you expect your tax rate to increase in retirement. Three, Put income-producing assets in your IRAs and 401ks and 403bs, but you want to put those capital gains outside of your traditional IRA, put them in a Roth if you can. All right, so yes, this may be a great case study for tax-efficient retirement savings, but it is also a great case study of abusive tax behavior, which is the bad. And there's plenty of reason to question whether we should even be offering tax benefit for retirement savings, given the inequality issues that we've discussed. In a turn, I'm going to try to be a little bit of an optimist here and say all hope is not yet lost, however, because a lot of people smarter than I think that there are ways to offer tax benefits for retirement savings while simultaneously preventing these abuses. So for example, Bob Lord, who's the tax counsel to Americans for Tax Fairness, writes for inequality.org that there are ways to fix this problem. First, require distributions in retirement. 
as long as you're alive, there's no minimum required distributions for a Roth. And that's totally stupid because it's a retirement account. It's supposed to fund your retirement. And so Bob Lord is saying, make people draw on their retirement funds to pay for their retirement. It seems mm -hmm. like a no brainer. Second, end the tax exemption at death. And three, limit the exemption on up to a certain amount of distributions. So maybe it's fine that Peter Thiel accumulated $5 billion of wealth in his Roth IRA. Maybe that wasn't his intention and he just got super lucky. But it's not like we can't retroactively limit the amount that he can withdraw from that account tax-free. And I would add to that that just maybe, maybe founders of startups shouldn't be able to use their tax preference retirement accounts to avoid tax on expected outsized appreciation if their venture takes off. I know we want to encourage risk-taking and investment, but zero tax on $5 billion? I'm going to call that excessive. Senator Ron Wyden proposed legislation to combat these abuses in 2016, but never introduced it. I think it's time to revisit it. And there are some senators who 100% agree with your point about not letting founders of startups use IRAs in this way. There are currently rumblings about proposals to limit the types of investment IRAs can make to those with observable market values. And this, to me, seems like a pretty direct way to avoid all of this valuation shenanigans entirely. Totally. And it makes sense because let's remember that in theory, these are quote, retirement accounts. And it might not be such a good strategy to encourage people to be taking these outside risks with their retirement. That just leaves the ugly. And to me, it's how these tax bills get evaluated. Some of the legislative motivation for allowing the Roth is that it's a revenue raiser up front. You're investing after-tax dollars, so you're paying tax now in the near term, and that matters when you're forecasting the revenue effects of a tax bill because those forecasts use a limited time horizon. This is really myopic because in the extreme case of Peter Thiel, the government collected tax at ordinary rates on $1,700 and gave up the right to tax $5 billion 30-something years later. And that's one reason it shouldn't be too surprising to us that in the legislative discussions around the writing of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, Congress actually explicitly endorsed the already widely known strategy of the backdoor Roth, making it perfectly, perfectly, unquestionably legal. You're right. It's kind of amazing, but they were willing to look the other way because people were paying tax now. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'm Lisa DeSimone. And I'm Bridget Stomberg. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses.